Okay, we are here to, to talk again uh, tonight about the argument from morality. Um, does anybody, because I'm going to do a quick review from last week, because last week it, it kind of took up the whole time and we didn't get to have any questions. I want to quickly do a quick brief review of last week. I want to spend a, little, a few minutes for any questions or comments anybody had on that. Uh, if you were here last week or if you weren't, um, we, uh, hopefully we'll be able to fill you in. And then we'll move into the second part of the, the moral argument. So this, before I start, though, does anybody need a copy from last week? I do have several copies from last week, um, and I can at least hand these out a while. And um, that way you at least have an idea of what we're talking about as we go along. Now, if you guys remember, last week we talked about, we started talking about the argument for morality, and we had said that it was... Um, one of the most, I believe it's the most effective. Um, and we said, well, why is that the most effective? Well, it's simple. Um, but more than that, it's, it's uh, instead of doing the cosmological argument that, that um, kind of racks your brain for a while, um, unless you're a science geek, you know, and I, and I can say that because well, I think it's interesting, so I guess I could be, well, I'm a geek all around, so what are you going to say? Um, I, I, I don't limit myself just to science. I'm an all-around kind of geek, you know. Um, but uh, unless, you, unless you're really interested in that kind of stuff, it becomes difficult to, um, to just really fathom. It's, it's difficult to use in everyday conversation. You know, you're not going to sit around and say, you know, you're sitting there with, your, with someone you work with, you go out to lunch with them, they're talking to you about how the boss is such a jerk or uh, political things that are going on in the world or the, the war's terrible or this or that. And you're not going to sit there and say, yeah, but have you ever thought about why we have something rather than nothing? You know, it's just not usually on the tip of your, maybe you do. Maybe, maybe you're, you have those kind of conversations. But most people don't. But even in just describing that situation, um, building the, 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 the situation I just did, I notice I said that it's, they're sitting across from you telling you how the boss is such a jerk. They think the boss is wrong. They think that the, what's happening over in this country is wrong and we should do this or this is going on right. That's morality. Morality is where we live. We have to make ethical choices every day. So this argument plays into everybody's life. Doesn't matter whether you know you're a Christian, whether you're white, whether you're black, whether you're American, whether you're a Hindu, or whether you're you're from India, whether you're a Hindu, whether you're a Christian. It plays for everybody. Everybody makes ethical decisions, so it's where everybody lives, not just where some people live. So I think it's very, very, very effective that way, and it, it's it's something that elicits a lot of emotion and a lot of conversation right from the get-go. Um, so we, we talked about why that's. Um, why that's, uh, I feel that that's the most important, it's the most effective argument anyway. And I think that it, it's most effective because I think it leaves no wiggle room anywhere for anyone to, to squirm around. When we actually finish the, the, uh, the entire argument, it leaves no wiggle room. I, I don't see how you can get around it. I really don't. I think it makes a very strong case for the existence of God. So what is it? What is the, the moral argument? Well, um, just three simple sentences. Uh, we call them premise, uh, two premises and a conclusion. Uh, and it goes like this. It says, if God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Objective morals, values, and duties do exist. Therefore, God exists. Okay? Very simple. And last week, we took the time to look at the first part of that, right? We looked at, if God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. We said, if God does not exist, what then do you, you link all of your moral um, understanding to? What do you link all moral value to? If morals and values are not of a solid anchor in absoluteness... 
and, then, and something absolute, then all morality is afloat in a sea of arbitrariness. And we took a look at what some people say is that they, they try to, um, some atheists, uh, some agnostics, we took a look at some last week, some naturalists, I should say, uh, that, that say there is no God. They, they kind of start from the bottom and work their way up. There is no God. Okay, they, they can't allow a God because they've already had that presupposition based on whatever reason. There cannot be a God. So they need to find a way to make objective moral values possible without something outside of time and space. And the problem is, if you, if you have to go outside of time and space, because if you don't, then everything's relative. And that's, that's the problem you come up with. You come up with, what do you tie it to? Do you tie it to culture? Do you tie, what do you tie it to? Um, and so they have to go outside of time and space, but they, they can't do that because they say there's nothing outside of time and space. That's what naturalism is. There's nothing outside this time. It's what you see is what you get. All around us, the cosmos is all there is, all there was, and all there ever will be. So for them, they cannot appeal to anything outside of time and space. And so they, they, they wiggle around and try to, try to find ways to, to find some sort of alternate foundation foundation on which to base all morality. Why be right? Remember, that was the question we kept talking about last week. Why? You know, this is wrong. Why is it wrong? Well, it's because why? If you just keep posing why, eventually you have to dig to the foundation. What are you basing all of this morality on? If you're not basing it on a transcendent, all good God outside of time and space, what are you left with? And we saw that some said uh, human flourishing. You know, it has to do with the, the propagation of a species because it's built through evolution. Um, and that comes, becomes very problematic uh, because there are a lot of things that propagate the species, which many would say are immoral. Um, and so that becomes a problem. Um, we also talked about the atheistic moral realism, the idea that, well, it, love, justice, mercy, those are just things that are. They just are. You know, I, they, there's, there's no way to put it towards anybody or, or, or ground it anywhere. There's no need to. It's just, it's just there. And then we talked about how that's just, it, it's almost nonsensical to say that there's an abstract that is, apart from any relationship or anything. There, some, that just cannot exist. And even if it did exist, how would it then become um, obligatory for, for us as humans, through an evolutionary process, as they would say, to be um, obliged to do that? Why does that become our duty? How does that become our duty? If, uh, if love, mercy, and justice exist necessarily, they just are, then hate, greed, and, mur and, and uh, anger and, and all those things exist as they are. Why do we do one? Why should we do one? Ought we to do one and not another? Um, so there's very big problems whenever you try to say that there's no objective morality outside of time and space. And that's what the beginning part of this premise says. It says, if God does not exist, then moral object objective moral and values and duties do not exist. You can't have it. You can't have objective. You can have moral values and duties to a degree, but you can't have objective moral duties and values without positing it with God, um, or laying the foundation anyway with God. Um, that's a very bird's eye view of, um, of last week, um, but I, I said we'd, we'd kind of come back to it again. And before we start into the second part of this moral argument, um, and again, I hate the word argument. I really do. I wish I could say the moral phrase. I, I, don't, I don't know. There's some other word other than argument because it makes it sound like there's toe-to-toe, -to -toe, you know, fisticuffs, fist you know, something's, something's going to happen. There's a rumble going to happen because I got an argument. Uh, I don't like that. I, li I like the idea of this is it's thought-provoking. It's, it's, it's trying to have someone examine their life and see, you know, hey, wait, I'm not really standing on anything. Well, I can give you something to stand on, and it's called God. Um, that's what this is all about. It's not about winning an argument. No one was ever won into heaven on, uh, with an argument. Um, 
So anyway, does anybody have any questions from last week? Any comments from last week? Anything I, I breezed over that uh, maybe I didn't make any sense? Um, maybe you don't even remember last week. I don't know. Um, but does anybody have any questions from last week or comments? And the crickets chirp. That's what I thought. Um, well, I didn't think that that would happen. I thought maybe we'd have a couple, but no big deal. That's perfectly fine. Does this make sense to everybody? Did that? Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. You have one. Um, meaning, when they when these guys get together, the the atheist and the theist, when they get together, is it just the same old arguments that just get thrown back and forth? Yeah, a lot of times it is. Um, a lot of times, and that's why, I mean, that's why when I, even when I, if you guys remember from last week, we saw Christopher Hitchens, I believe was first, and uh, when asked, you know, uh, where, do you, where, do moral, where do your morals come from? Where do you ground your morality in? Um, he just kind of quick takes a, a side street and just says about how, um, he kind of talks a little bit about how it's beneficial for the community and that kind of thing, but he quick takes a side street and says about how, look how bad Christianity is. And again, it is one of those things, yeah, but why? What, what gives you the right to critique Christianity? What are you critiquing it with? Are you, are you critiquing it just with human flourishing? Like, what, are you, what is your objective morality by which you call Christianity wrong? And it, he doesn't get, nobody calls him on the carpet on that one. But you got to see, that's, that's his tack is usually, Christopher Hitchens' tack is usually just to quick turn it and try to make a cut on the Christianity. Uh, Charles Dawkins, we also saw, and he kind of pushed it right over to biology, but then did the same thing when asked. He said, you know, uh, take a look at Christianity. If that's Christianity, if that's objective morality, I don't want anything to do with it, is what he said. Um, and then um, we also looked at, um, uh, oh yeah, Peter Singer, who's the ethicist from Princeton University, I believe. And um, he, uh, he basically kind of did a little bit of the same thing, uh, except he took a different tack and said, well, you know, it's not unique to Christianity. You don't have to be religious to have objective morals. Uh, look at, look at uh, what uh, some of the Eastern philosophies have. They have something similar to the golden rule. And uh, if you remember, Dinesh D'Souza was there and said, exactly, that's my whole point. Why do we all have these objective morals? So when you, oftentimes when you do see these debates, yes, they do. That you do see the same arguments going on and on. And a lot of times on these debates, I, I, I've listened to many different debates, and I don't remember even hearing one where at the end the guy says, oh, you're right, I give up, you know, I've got to switch to your side. You know, I've never seen that. I mean, they come in it with their guns loaded, and they walk out with the same guns. They don't, they don't ever, and that's not necessarily the point. Um, it's not a futile effort by any means because in some there's there are many people that come to listen. There are many people that may have um, intellectual stumbling blocks to understanding how the exist what the existence of God could be. And so hearing someone present a rational case over against the atheist who may not present his case as well may allow them to say, "Yeah, you know what? That's all I needed. That's all I really needed." So and there is a there is a we would believe as as, as Christians that there is a darkening of the mind. There is a as Romans one tells us there is a part where people suppress the truth in unrighteousness they don't the, the the cost for them to accept what the bible claims is too great for the, what their own life wants they want to run their own lives and to, to what the what the evidence shows it would be a relinquishing of their life over to the lordship of jesus christ and that scares them that they don't want that and so there is a suppression of unrighteousness their, their presuppositions they come in with they go right out with that there can't be a god i have to start there Instead of saying, is there possibly God? And I shouldn't say everybody does that. Anthony Flew was a noted atheist who, um, before he died, um, which was somewhat recently, a few years ago, I believe, he did uh, turn the corner from atheism to theism. 
Um, we're not quite sure if he took the full turn and uh, saw, um, believed in the Lord Jesus Christ as his Savior, but he at least started that the, 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 we can only hope and pray that he did actually at one point uh, realize that, that uh, the God of the Bible is the true and only God. But um, oftentimes, yes, you, you do hear the same arguments, and um, that's why I could easily pick out who would say it and what they'd say, and I could list a few more. It's, it's the rhetoric you hear, and I'm sure you guys hear it. If you don't hear it, you will hear it. Um, and oftentimes, that's the way the conversation turns. You know, it's, it's Christianity is so immoral. How do you deal with all the immoral things in the Bible and, and all that stuff? And, and you know what? Christianity does have a jaded past. It does have an ugly past. And nobody, I'm not going to lie to anybody about it. But the minute you say that Christianity has a, has a, has a jaded past or has an evil past to it, evil things have happened, you've got to tell me why you call that evil. And that's, that's what this whole argument gets to. It strips away all of those, those words and gets down to the foundation. Any other questions or comments from last week? Yeah. Couldn't the, I don't want to get off on a tangent here, but couldn't the moral argument pretty much be extended to all concepts of right and wrong? I mean, if in order for you to be able to analyze anything in space and time, you have to have something that comes from outside space and time, like the human mind, you have re, human reason that's given to us. Um, so really, by denying a god, you deny you deny any real ability to know anything. Yeah, that's um, and, and and I just want to take a second. We're gonna we're gonna take a little display just to clarify something. What we're talking about here is not about knowing right and wrong. You're right. Uh, we are talking about all right and wrong. Um, in, in every sense of the word. What we're talking about here is, is all morality, all values and duties. So we are talking about all right and wrong. Um, but how we know is different than what is. In other words, um, that's a difference. It's what we call ethical ontology. What is is different than ethical uh, epistemology, um, how we know it. There's a difference between what is and how we know something. Um, and so what we're talking about right here is what is. We're saying there is an objective morality, not saying how do we come to know that objective morality. Because basically um, what we're saying is even if we didn't know about an objective morality, there still is an objective morality. Um, and so that's what we're saying. We're, but we're, we're saying that you can't ground those things um, inside time and space because at that point it doesn't become objective. It becomes relative. And we all attest to the fact, which we're going to talk about tonight, we all attest to the fact that there are some things that are objectively right and objectively wrong. Um, it's just that's the way it is. Reason and experience will t testify to that, and we'll we'll talk a little bit more about that as well. Yeah. Oh, I thought you know, it'd be more fun if you weren't. We'd have no. I'm just. No, we always we always need an antagonist. So go ahead. Yeah. Well, there, there are many people as well. Um, but the the question is not so much do they think it's wrong, but is it wrong? And what I would say, though, is, you know, we have psychopaths who say murdering and chopping people up for fun is not wrong. But what do we say in society? We, we call them psychopaths, and we put them away and say, you're not right. You're not allowed to do that because we're all appealing to something objective. And that's what we would say with all of, you know, the idea is we would say, go into that and say, that's not right what they're doing there. So we would go in and try to educate them or something. And I would, I would suggest that even in that culture, there are things which, which they would still see as right and wrong. I don't believe that all morality is gone on that island. And this is a thought experiment, so there are a lot of variables in there. But I'd imagine that if you went in and said, I'm going to take anybody I want and do that, they would, that would be a problem. I, I'm going to take all your wives and I'm going to make them mine. Well, that's a problem. There are certain things which are right and wrong. Um, and so an anomaly doesn't make 
the, the argument completely. But we would say, obviously, there's anomalies everywhere, but that doesn't disprove the fact that that is still right and wrong. Um, so I don't know if that helps at all. Okay. Any other questions or comments before we move on? Okay. So basically, we've argued the case, and I think it makes very good sense to say that apart from there being a God outside of time and space, you can't have objective morality. You can't have something that is objective. So before we, um, before we move on to the next section, which says objective moral values and duties do exist, let me, let me read for you a quote. And I think I'm just going to read the quote. It's a little bit lengthy. Um, it comes from C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. I think, he just, I think he just words it so well. He just, he just has a way of putting things into, into some plain language that just kind of like, yeah, you know, what? that's a good way of saying it. So let me, let me read here. He says, every one of us has heard quarreling. Sometimes it sounds funny, and sometimes it sounds merely unpleasant, but however it sounds, I believe we can learn something very important from listening to the kind of things they say. They say things like, how'd you like it if anyone did the same to you? Or, that's my seat, I was here first. Leave him alone, he isn't doing you any harm. Why should you shove in first? Give me a bit of your orange, and, I, and I'll give you a bit of, I gave you a bit of mine. Or, come on, you promised. People say things like that every day, educated people as well as uneducated, and children as well as grown-ups. Now, what interests me about all these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior does not happen to please him. He is appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which is that he expects the other man to know about. And he goes on from there to, uh, to talk about what he calls the law of, of human nature. Um, and that's what, this, that's what this whole second argument is going to, or second premise is going to talk about. He says, he says, look around you. You all see quality. You all see something going on where someone says, that's not, what's, that's not fair. I mean, you see it from children. They have this innate sense of fairness, of justice. That's not right. You see it everywhere. And the example I gave from the very beginning, you know, you're sitting with your coworker and they're, you know, the boss is a jerk because he did this. He didn't give me this raise or she didn't do this for me. And that's not fair. I did this. I deserved this. Well, when you're sitting there talking, you're obviously understanding, there's a mutual understanding, even though it's implied and not explicitly stated, that, that there is something, a justice that you're both appealing to. That person's expecting you to say, you're right, that's not fair, that shouldn't happen that way. Not just, mm, I guess it didn't please you, it's fine for me. You know, I got your job. <laughs> it doesn't matter to me. You know, that's not how we, that's not how we act. We, we all uh, appeal implicitly to some sense of justice when we say that's not fair, that's not right. You should do this. You ought to do this. Whenever you say that, we all appeal to something outside of ourselves. Right? Does that make sense? That's what Lewis is getting. And that's what the second argument, or the second, excuse me, the second premise gets to. It says objective moral values and duties do exist. Very simple. It's just making a statement that you look around the world today, there are objective moral values and duties. So l let me break that down just for a second. By objective, again, I want to say objectivity, uh, objectivity or objective means something that exists out, independent of what I, th I think or believe. You know, I could say, you know, this is a chair, not a pew. And you would say, Jason, you're off your rocker, you're not right, you know, you're not well, sit down, have a drink, you know, get some water in you, whatever. There's something not right with you. Uh, but no, that's what I think and believe, so therefore this is a chair, not a pew. You know, not a long pew, it's, it's a simple little chair. No, no, that's not right. Well, no, it's what I believe, therefore it's right. You would say, no, it, it's a pew, whether you like it or not. You can call it whatever you want, but it's a pew. That's what it is. Um, and, and we do that with all sorts of things. If you remember from the discussion several weeks back about 
um, truth, that's what we, we talked about, you know, the, that objective truth is that which corresponds to what really is. And that's what this is saying. Objective just means it's independent of what I think. If whether I like it or not, that's the way it is. Um, so that's what we're saying by objective moral values. We say there are some things that are right and wrong, whether I like it or not. And whether I think they're right and whether I think they're wrong, it doesn't matter. This makes it right or wrong. Okay? Uh, and then by values, we mean things that are judged to be right and things that are judged to be wrong. And duties, those things which we ought then to do because of those values or things we should not do. So the values means there's objective things that are right and wrong, and then the duties, there are objective things which we should do and which we should not do. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay. Um, basically, uh, here, here's an objective idea, okay? Um, if, I, if I were to sit down with my, my first grade daughter, and, I, and um, we're, we're doing her homework, and she's you know, doing math, uh, and she's like, Dad, I, I, did, I, I finished my homework. Can you check? Well, sorry, sweetie, you got that one wrong. Well, it's 2 plus 2 equals 6, dear. That's, 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 it's new. It's new. <laughs> Maybe it wasn't when, you know, when I was in school, it was 4. But I know now, my dear, that 2 plus 2 equals 6. And so she'd you know, get a little confused and write it, and she'd get it wrong, wouldn't she? Because 2 plus 2 doesn't equal 6. Well, in our house, it does. I, mean, I go for cookies, and I want two more. I better have six on my plate, right? That's the way it works. Um, but you would say, that's not right. It doesn't matter what you think. Two plus two is four. And if you can't understand that concept, you're never going to get a job as an accountant kind of thing. You know, that's, that's the, just the way it is. Um, and so we say that exists whether I like it or not. That's an objective truth. That's something that exists apart from me. Uh, I can hate it all I want. I can wish I had six cookies instead of four. That doesn't make the fact that two plus two equals four. That's an objective truth. Um, so just because you, you perceive something one way doesn't make it so. Just because I think something might be right doesn't mean that it is right or it's wrong. There's something that, that has to be uh, beyond that. Uh, here's another example. Um, when I worked um, my, so my short stint as an auto body technician, um, I learned the whole trade. So I learned you know, how to bring a car in, tear it down, you know, fix it up the metal, and do the frame pools, all that, up to the refinishing. And um, for a while there, I was working with a partner, um, just the way we did things. We had teams. And my, my, the partner I had, I didn't have a choice of who I picked, but he was working with me. And so I said, well, you finish this part of the car. You know, it's just the last little bit of detail. just needed a pinstripe on it. I said, you just finish the pinstripe, and I'll go over here. He had never done one, a painted pinstripe anyway. He had done some tape ones. He would never done a painted pinstripe before. And he said, well, how do you, can you show me how to do this? I said, sure, sure, sure. You just got to tape it off. And I said, there, there was a dual pinstripe. I said, you just got to tape the bottom one off and do the top one first, then remix your color and do the bottom one. Because the top one was a brown and the bottom one was like a charcoal gray. And he said, why would I, I'll just do them at the same time. And I kind of scratched my head and looked down. And I said, well, how are you going to do both at the same time? You know, one's brown and one's gray. And he's like, no, they're not. They're both gray. And I kind of looked at him a little crooked. I said, no, one's brown and look right here you know one's brown and one's gray and he said no no they're the same color and, I, and it started to click with me why he had to repaint so many cars before um i, I said come with me to the office we went in and we printed off a couple colorblind tests I said do you see any numbers in any of these circles here no i don't see any there's no numbers in those circles and i realized that somehow i got the short end of the stick with my partner who's uh who's now painting our cars colorblind. Um, but it didn't matter what he thought. He kept telling me, those are two of the same, that's the same color. There's not a difference between those colors. It didn't matter what he perceived. There were two different colors there. And if, had he painted that without me seeing it, we would have sent that car off and had it return when the customer pretty upset as to why we painted that panel with 
two different, you know, two different types of stripes. So it doesn't, it's independent of what you may think or believe. That's what we're saying object, objective moral values and truths are. There's, there's something that exists no matter what you think or believe, those things necessarily exist. Um, so let's take a, what, what are some, uh, the objective moral arguments is, is what, we, what we're talking about, but there's the opposite of that then would be what we call relativism. Okay, if something's not objective, if there's something doesn't, <coughs> excuse me, if, there, if one view is say everything is independent of what I like to think or believe, you know, it, it's true whether I like it or not, it's, it's true. Uh, over here would say that the opposite of that is to say it's relative on some, uh, uh, with something. It's not independent, it's actually dependent on the person or group or whatever it's relative to. That's what relativism says. It's not independent, now it's dependent on something. Okay? Relativism is the idea that an objective morality does not exist. Okay, right and wrong are relative to individuals, cultures, and groups. <clears throat> now, we're going to talk about this for a little bit, but it's uh, right from the get-go, let's, let's understand that this is, this is what a majority of today's culture says they're about. Okay, the majority of today's culture says that it's relative, they talk about relative truths, relative values, Things are all very relative. And what we're going to kind of talk about, the reason why, again, why this, this argument is so effective and so powerful is that nobody really lives there. Okay, we're going to, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. Why, nobody actually, we all say that, well, we all say that, but a majority of uh, well-educated university students say that. And what's actually interesting is there was a poll not too long ago, <coughs> excuse me, I don't know the details of the poll, but I, I have heard about this poll that, that basically found out that it's not as deep as we think it goes, the relativism inside the university. At least it is among the students. It's very popular among students coming in. Just the, the, the popular culture has taught them that this relativistic idea, what's true for you is not true for me. You keep your truth and don't shove it down my throat. You know, all those terms you've always heard. And what they found out in this poll while polling professors of the university is they found out they're not as relativistic as we may think the culture is. Kids aren't necessarily learning it from them, necessarily. Now, that's not always true. I, I can pick a couple, you know, university professors at some major universities, um, and, and they're just, I think they're off the rocker, but, you know, who am I? Um, and they're just, you know, out to lunch sometimes with some of their ideas. But um, the idea is that, that the professors aren't as relativistic because they, they've thought it through. And actually, the, those professors who are the least relativistic or the, or the ones that would say that they least believe, uh, the fewest believe in relative moral values, are the philosophy professors, the ones who've actually sat the longest to think about it the hardest and said, that doesn't make any sense. I can't live like that. Nobody can live like that. And so it's actually not as though it's coming from the top down, but a lot of it's coming from the culture, the culture at large. And, and here's one reason why. Um, how did we get there? How did we get to this culture that seems to say that everything's relative. Your truth is not my truth. We let those people do what they want to do, and we shouldn't in, in, you know, push in on them to see to, to our values. We should let them have their own values. We should let those cannibals eat each other. You know, eventually they'll die out, and there'll be one left, right? That's, that's the way it's going to have to happen. So you know, let's just let it go. It's not, who are we to jump in there? Everything's relative. Uh, and and this, is, this is what Alan Bloom said, and I think he has, has a very good point. He says, the danger, they, meaning just the, the young people in the culture today, um, they have been taught to fear is from absolutism, another word for objectivity, something is saying there's absolute truth, there's an objective truth apart from what I think or feel. He says, the danger they have been taught to fear from this absolute, absolutism 
is not error, but intolerance. See, relativism is necessary to openness, and, and this is the virtue, the only virtue, which all primary education for more, than 50, for more than 50 years has dedicated itself to inculcating. Openness and the relativism that makes it the only plausible stance in the face of various claims to truth and various ways of life and kinds of human beings is the great insight of our times. So, so what, what is he saying? He's saying, look, it's, it's, the problem is the fear... In the, uh, of, being, uh, of saying there's an absolute right and wrong is not the fact of the fear of being wrong. The fear is, of, of be, is not as being seen as wrong necessarily. The fear is being seen as intolerant. Right? How many of you have ever been labeled intolerant before, right? Well, I, I believe homosexuality is a sin. You're intolerant. How could you ever think that? Well, I believe that Jesus Christ is the only way, you know, to God the Father. I believe he's the only way for salvation. You're intolerant of other views. How could you believe that? Right? And people aren't scared of being wrong. They're scared of being called intolerant. Ironically, that puts a whole new spin on the, phrase, on the term intolerant, doesn't it? I mean, the whole definition of intolerance means that two people have opposing views. <laughs> right? So to say you need to stop being so intolerant, basically what they're saying is just agree with me. Right? That's what, that's what they're saying. You need to agree that, that it's not wrong. Or you need to agree that Jesus is not the only way. You need to then and, and agree to pluralism, that, that there's many different ways, or it's all, there, everybody has a way to God. You need to stop saying there's one way. That's being intolerant. No, being intolerant is, is us disagreeing about it. That's intolerance. But me to say, you have your right to say yours, you're wrong, but you have your right to, you have your right to say yours, and I'm going to affirm your right to say what you believe, and you should affirm my way, my right to say it. That's that's being tolerant. To say you have your view and and you you have your right to state it. I have my view and I have my right to state it. That's tolerance. But unfortunately, what happens is intolerance becomes that which does not agree with the other person, or that which is not accepting of all other views. Right? If you're going to be very exclusivistic, if you're going to say there's only one way, then they're saying you're intolerant. Um, and and so unfortunately, then. It's moved for, and instead of being intolerant, let's just be open and say there's not just one truth, it's all truth. Everybody gets to make their own truth. Now nobody can really be wrong, so nobody can be intolerant, right? That, that's the thinking. Nobody has to worry about being, have an error, be an error or be wrong because, well, nobody can be if we're all right. And so the fear here in, in, in this absolute, the fear of having an absolute and absolute right and wrong is that someone's right and someone's wrong. And so the, the, the idea is, well, let's just wipe that away and let's just call it tolerance. Everybody has a view and everybody's view is right. Um, the problem is relativism in and of itself, this, this idea of relative truth, relative moral values is self-refuting, right? I say this is right, you say this is wrong, but relativism, relativism says we're both right. How does that work? I say A, you say B. But relativism says we're both right. It's self-refuting. That, that, that doesn't make any sense. It's even more self-refuting when you think when someone says, I believe uh, relativism, relativism is right. Well, good, because I believe relativism is wrong. And by your view of saying relativism is right, that makes my view of saying relativism is wrong right. You see? It, it's self-refuting. It, it blows itself up. It, it can't stand because it has nothing to stand upon. 
And so just the very concept of relativism right from the get-go is self-refuting. It crumbles upon itself. It makes no sense. But we've turned it, instead of calling it relativism, we call it tolerance now. And we try to take that view. And what's very interesting is we, we had this discussion on truth uh, several, several weeks ago. You know, and we're, we're talking about truth, you know, this concept way up in the sky, you know, and it's, it's floating on a cloud. You know, you feel like we should be stroking our beards and smoking pipes and saying, you know, oh, truth, yes. What is truth? You know, it's, we wax the eloquent about it. Uh, but here we bring it down, don't we? I mean, this is relativism where everybody, this is where everybody lives. Because when we talk about absolutism, rights, uh, we talk about uh, relativism, where is it, what is it usually attached to? It's usually attached to something that has to do with morality, right? It has to do with something. It's what's true for you is not true for me. Usually doesn't mean a concept about math, right? It doesn't usually have anything to do with, well, you know, well, that, that 2 plus 2, that's true for you, but it's not true for me. You know, that, that, that does equal 6. We all giggle at that because nobody, uh, well, nobody on the outside of a certain building says that. Let's put it that way, right? Now, if you were to say that and say it seriously, you would either need to be, you know, taken back to first grade math or put into a, a special home because that's just not the way this world operates. But we don't use it that way. That phrase, what's true for you, is not always true for me, or is not true for me, usually gets attached to a moral concept or a moral idea. Well, your view on, on what marriage is is maybe true for you, but it's not true for me. That's a relative idea. And so that's, that's the idea here behind relativism. Now, so where do they get that? How do they, how do they make even sense of that? Because there are some people that honestly think that way. And what you'll find is there are very few that actually logically live it out. But there are people who think that way. Well, how do they, how do they get there? What are some views that are, that are kind of um, opposite of objective morality. Well, we have one, it's called, I call it ethical nominalism. Big word, don't worry about the word. Basically what it says on the, on the back side there, that's more important. It says, labels of right and wrong, they're just arbitrary. Basically, there is no right and wrong. We just arbitrarily label things right and wrong. Therefore, that label can be wiped off and wiped back on. And nominalism has the idea that, that labels are stuck on things arbitrarily. Um, we see that with, you know, gender. You know, what is gender? You know, who, who gets to decide who's male and female? You know, that, that's just a, a label we put on something. Therefore, that, because it, it's nominal, we can just rip that label off and slap it to something else, right? That's the idea. Yes. Uh, there is an idea out there that kind of says it's all, we label it certain ways, and that's arbitrary. It's, it's arbitrary to a group. It's arbitrary to a person. It's just arbitrary. There is no actual really right and wrong anyway. We just have to label things, and so we just do. Um, well, that just, that's the extreme form of relativism, where there's no right and wrong. There's no standard. There's nothing. And you know, whatever, whatever we want to do is, is fine, because it's just an arbitrary label uh, that we just throw on things. Uh, there's, and again, there's not too many people that you would meet that actually would believe that or, or live there. Um, another idea we have here is conventionalism. Okay? And that's, that's something we kind of hear a little bit more about. Convention, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I skipped one there. I say your paper's flipping, that's because I skipped a page there, I'm sorry. Um, instead of, uh, uh, before conventionalism, let's talk about subjectivism, okay? We said that relativism, the broad category of relativism, says that, that there's not an objective right and wrong. It's relative to something, okay? And that's what we're looking at. The first one says it's relative to really nothing. It's just arbitrary labels we just slap on things, and there's no right and wrong at all. 
This next form of subjectivism says that right and wrong is relative to an individual. Each individual gets to determine it. Right and wrong is not determined by something outside of us. It's determined by us. This is where you usually would, this is what would really have the concept under it of what's true for you is not true for me, right? Uh, or what's right for you is not right for me, or you, I'm sure, how many of you have heard that concept at least, or heard that statement once before? Usually it's in a heated debate with someone about something, or they hear your intolerant stance about something, and they just, they, they, that's their zinger, and that's supposed to stop the conversation. Um, but that, the problem becomes then is, again, this, this idea is self-refuting. Well, my, my, you know, what's true, right for you and right for me, well, does that flip then too? What's right for me is, doesn't have to be right for you. We both get to make what's right. If that's the case, I believe you're wrong, which makes me right. Right? You see that again? Hang, hang on to your to comment. One, one second there. Let me finish this thought. Um, this idea, though, also destroys a sense of justice. It, de it destroys the sense of fairness. Because you know what? I, I could just walk up to any one of you and take your car keys, go get your car, and drive away. And you can't say anything about it. I get to decide what's right and wrong. Nobody else gets to decide it. So if you think it's wrong, it doesn't matter. I decide it, and I think it's right. And the Mr. Policeman pulls me over. I'm sorry, officer. Um, if you ask me, I, I really do think this is right. So you, you need to let me go. I'm sorry. That, that's just the way we, we have to operate here. Um, nobody can really live in that realm. Uh, and, I think I, and I told this story even, I think, last week about my father-in-law who you know, worked in the construction site and the guy had a, had a cheesesteak and, and argued this point. Well, we all, it's just based on whatever we want. It's, it's every, all morality is relative. We determine what's right and wrong. And there is no objective morality. And my, my father-in-law decided to eat half a sandwich when he got up to go get a soda. When the guy come back, came back, he was, thought there was something objectively wrong about that. My father-in-law thought it was a great sandwich, so why not just eat it? The guy didn't think that was right. And he said that. That's not right. That's not fair. And my father-in-law kind of looked at him and said, I guess you do agree with something that's objective, don't you? You're appealing to something outside of both of us, a sense of fairness, a sense of rightness that you know I should have, uh, that I should have adhered to. Otherwise, you would have nothing. You come back and say, hmm, now did you think that was right or wrong? And if he says it's wrong, well, now I can yell at you. But if you think it's right, well, I hope it was a good sandwich. I better go get another one. Um, but the idea was that he, he felt that there was something that was objectively wrong with what happened. And so if we, if we believe that we are the ones who determine right and wrong, we're no longer able to say that's right, that's wrong. That's the, that's the quote I, I, I quoted from C.S. Lewis. When you sit down with someone, people have this idea of fairness. They have an idea of something that determines what's right and wrong for all of us. Otherwise, we, we, we can't say anything about it. Yeah. Right. And, and, and I think what, what, what's actually happening there is they are operating there. But, but what happens is they don't want to use that language because that's very black and white. Now, you, you move, you move uh, the relativism with a subjective feel to it, if you will. In other words, that makes me feel this way. I'm, that makes me happy. This makes me sad. This, you know, that's, that's what makes you happy. Well, this is what makes me happy. Um, and so that's the way they, they count it. Because how, how are you to, 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 to uh, say, well, that, that can't make you happy. That can't, that, you can't say that. And, and that, is, that is true. You, I can't determine for you what makes you happy and what makes you not happy. And I think what, what needs to be said at that point, well, then to take it to that step and say, yes, but is it right? 
um, you know, well, your religion makes you happy, um, but, but the way I'm living my life is what makes me happy. What, what becomes a determiner for right and wrong is human pleasure, is happiness, is fulfillment, is what we talked about last week, is human flourishing. That becomes their objective standard, um, which is not so objective as we talked about last week because it's still bound within time and space. It still changes according to people, according to cultures. So when they say, you know, well, your religion, you know, that's what makes you happy. You can follow that path. But my religion of Hindu, Buddha, slash, you know, Christianizing nation, you know, know, where they mix all the religions together, this is what makes me happy. This makes me fulfilled. So just leave me alone. Don't push your Christianity. Yes, but is it right? Mine says Jesus Christ is the only way to God the Father. Yours says there's many different ways. We can't both be right, right? One of us has to be right and one of us has to be wrong. So whether it makes you feel good, that's fine, but is it right? And some people are actually, when you've, I've talked to a few people that they're happy to live in the, it just makes me happy. And, and at that point, your, your hands are kind of tied. You know, for me, I, that's, that's fine. Sometimes, what, and, and C.S. Lewis talks about this, too, about the, the, the human law that he talks about. Says it's, it's sometimes it's as hard as nails, he puts it. And he says it doesn't care what you like or what you dislike. There's a right and wrong that, that, you need, that everybody needs to adhere to, whether they like it or not. I, I like eating other people's sandwiches. It tasted good. But it's not right. And that might be a way to, to then show the, the um, self-refuting nature of that argument, to put it into a, something that would offend them to the point of saying, well, that's wrong. Well, wait a minute, but that made me happy. To smack you in the face made me happy. You know, that, that, does, that, you can't say that's wrong then. It may have made you unhappy, and I'm sorry about that, but it made me happy, and apparently that's what we're judging. Um, but but the, they are in that realm of right and wrong. We just couch it in different terms so that you can't appeal to it any other way. You can't say right and wrong. You say happy and unhappy. Who am I to say what makes you happy? Um, so, yeah, and that's, so that's where we are with, with subjectivism, yes. If you say it's wrong, then you're intolerant. Then you're intolerant, right. But that's, that's that purple that you mean. Yes. Um, and so... What happens is, is, is the biggest thing to, with this whole part of the argument, this whole premise, is simply to appeal to people's sense of right and wrong. We all have it. We all have a sense of right and wrong. And I would, and we'll talk, we'll, we'll hopefully get to there as to why I feel that is. Why I feel that we all have this sense. I, everybody has this sense of right and wrong. Uh, that's how this world operates. That's why we can be civil with each other and not take each other's sandwiches. And not, we'd see a, a, a civilization that did something like that, and that's wrong. Something's not right there. That's, that, that's not healthy. That's not good. But even in those type situations, there's still certain things across the board that are right and that are wrong. Um, and so to simply appeal to someone's sense of right and wrong is, is the best way for them to, to show that they do believe in objective moral values. They, they do believe some things to be right and some things to be wrong. Yeah. You can try to reveal it. Um, they, they, they reveal it themselves in so many different ways. And we'll, we'll hit a bit about it. Actually, let me see if I answer it in this next point. If not, call me on it. Because I, I think you actually segued right into this next point there, which is perfect. It's perfect. Because you were talking about the, the idea that we talked about last week with, with Hitler and with, um, you know, 1948 Germany and, and all of that. Remember we talked about 1948? Yeah, that's right, I think. Um, anyway, we talked about the idea. Remember last week the, the, the idea I said, how many of you think that you know, killing 6 million Jews because they're Jews and the 6 million Jews and gypsies because that's who they are um, was right? And nobody raised their hand. Praise the Lord. 
Um, and how many of you thought it was wrong? And everybody raised their hand. I said, okay, now if we were living in the 1940s in America, how many of you would think that it was still uh, wrong for the, Jew, for the Germans to be killing the Jews like that? And everybody raised their hand. Yes, if I lived in 1940s in America, I would still say that that would be wrong. And I probably would support us going into war to stop them from doing that um, because it was, it was wrong. Okay, now if you were living in 1940s Germany, um, would you have said, it, or would, do you believe that it would still be wrong? Now, I wasn't asking, do you personally think that if you were alive in Germany at that time, would you have been you know, brainwashed and would you have thought it was wrong? That we can't understand, that we can't know. But would it have still been wrong even if you lived in Germany and you were German? Say you didn't have the propaganda shoved at you and you wake up one morning, maybe you're in a coma, I don't know, you fell off a horse and now you woke up in a coma 10 years later and Hitler's in charge and he's wiping out the Jews and you look around, would you suddenly look around because you lived in that time with those people in that culture and say, ah, that's right. Or would you still say that's wrong? And everybody said, well, that would still be wrong. Uh, and that, that's because we are appealing to an objective morality. There's something where we would say killing innocent people, children, men, women, and torturing them for science and for fun is wrong. No matter who you are, no matter where you are, no matter when you are. But for those who were in Hitler's, part of Hitler's, Hitler's Jugendkorps or part of the, uh, the, uh, the Nazi regime, for them, they believed they were doing something right. And again, that goes back to the fact of that's what objective morality is. It doesn't matter whether they think it's right or not, it's still wrong. Um, and so this is what conventionalism says. Though. Conventionalism says it is right if we can get a whole group of people to say it's right, just like Hitler did. Hitler had to turn the corner. Remember last week we also talked about how did Hitler start to do that? How did it come from, and remember we read the, uh, the, the, the quote from the gentleman who spent some time in a concentration camp, and he says he believes that this, the way that the country turned so far from believing uh, those things were right and wrong to turning the corner and saying, yes, killing six million Jews is right, the way that that happened didn't happen in a war room. It didn't happen um, on some parade march. It happened in the classrooms. It happened in the universities where they shoved out God and objective morality. And he, he didn't say this part, but we know that Hitler um, was uh, very steeped in the writings of Nietzsche who said, God is dead. He's famous for saying, God is dead. Um, loosed the mooring to which we tie all our morality to. And now they have to come up with their own morality. How? With this next section, conventionalism. Hitler gets to determine what's right and wrong. Those in power, though the majority get to say what is right and what is wrong. And as long as the majority, uh, this view says, as long as the majority of people feel that it's right and wrong, it therefore is right and wrong. Morality is based on a convention, it's based on a group, and the majority rules. So if we all sit here, and I take a show of hands of who would like to eat everybody else's cheesesteaks. And, and I get, you know, 60% of the people say it is, you know, by conventionalism, uh, pared down, that's what they would say. Well, then that, by, for our group, would be what is right. And, and that's kind of the concept that would happen, that happened in, in, uh, in Germany at that time. As long as everybody feels it's right, as long as this group thinks it's right, it's considered right. And actually, when some of the uh, higher uh, officials uh, in, the, in the Nazi regime were on trial, in the Nuremberg trials, that's kind of what they said. Well, that, we didn't know any different. That's, that's what we believed was right and wrong. Why, you know, why should we be held to any other standard? We believed that was right and wrong. And we believed that was right. That's what Hitler told us. We were just following orders. And so that's what conventionalism says. As long as the majority says it's right, 
they are the ones who get to decide what's right and wrong. This is also, decide, this is also called cultural relativism, where the last one was kind of a personal relativism. You know, the person gets to decide what's right and wrong. This one's a cultural relativism. The culture gets to decide what's right and wrong. Right? So, so if, if, the, uh, if, um, if over in the Middle East women are degraded, if they're seen as less than people, they're seen as properties, they're made to cover themselves so much so that no one's allowed to see them, the husbands can, can use them the same as cattle and, and discard them whenever they want, well, that's their culture, so we should let that happen because that's their culture. So we can't critique that because, as this view would say, conventionalism, the, the group gets to decide what's right and wrong. It's relative to the group that you're in. Um, societies, cultures, groups get to define morality, what's right and what's wrong. As long as the group says it's right, it's right. Uh, different cultures have different values, therefore there's no objective morality. Again, remember last week we talked about how there can't be objective morality without God. Now we're talking about um, ideas uh, or groups that would say that there is no objective morality. We're not even worried about finding about objective morality. There isn't any. It's tied to our group. It's tied to our culture. Um, Let's see. Oops, I skipped there. Uh, here's an example, uh, and this is this is the this is the example people that would believe, understand this uh, conventionalism would say. They'd say, well, well, take a look, take a look over here. Let's see, uh, Mexico. Okay, Mexico abortion's prohibited. You're not allowed to have abortion. All right. Well, we take a look at the United States. Well, in the United States, it's it's not prohibited. It's optional. You know, if, if, if right now, with the way Roe v. Wade is, if you decide to terminate a pregnancy, it's, it, it's the woman's right, they would say, to, to be able to decide that. That's the way our, our culture, unfortunately, says, states it. Um, but in China, and now in China, there's a, there's a certain law that, in some instances, abortion is actually commanded. So, so see, it just proves that conventionalism is right. It shows that in this culture, it, it one, asked one, one uh, moral value saying uh, the taking of a baby's life is wrong and that it's prohibited. Here it's optional, and in another place it actually says it's completely right and that they should do it. That's what they would appeal to. That's what the, a conventionalist would appeal to. They'd say, well, look at, look at the way it is. There's no objective morality. It's based on the cultures. Now, what, what, now, the way we would critique that, the way we would come, I would, I would say back to that is say, simply observing how something is does not describe how things ought to be, right? That's a, the idea of being, something being descriptive rather than prescriptive. I can describe the way a culture is. Yes, you're right. That's the way Mexico has their laws. This is the way the United States has their laws. This is the way China has their laws, but that's not the way it ought to be. And even though they believe it's right and wrong to a certain extent, there, it is, it, it, there is something we would, we would appeal to to say it's not right and wrong. Now, um, again, we, we can also point to the fact that there are certain things that everybody would say would be wrong. If you went to any culture and said, you know, rape, uh, for the most part, I don't know of a culture that would say, yes, rape is good. In, in all cases, rape is good. I don't know of any culture that would say torturing little babies for fun just because you like to, to, to hurt little children and torture them would be good and would be right. There's something about that. There's, that, that drives to the core of a, an objective morality. Um, so, so even so, some societies may say this thing is right, killing Jews is right. Um, we would say that still doesn't make it right. That describes the way Hitler's Germany was, but it doesn't describe what it ought to be. Um, and there are things that we, our reason and experience, appeal to. 
Oh, I don't, I don't, and, I, and forgive me if I seem to have made the statement that all, that I equated Germans, all Germans with Nazis. I, I certainly don't mean to do that. I mean, there were many, many of uh, those in Germany who saw the, the deplorable state of the moral um, tenor of the day and that they tried to stand up. Um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was one of them and was martyred for, for the cause. He stood up and said, based on the gospel of Jesus Christ, this is wrong. And he gave his life for that, um, which actually goes to refute the very idea of conventionalism. Because many would say, yes, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was right to stand up and stand against the German, uh, the Nazis at that time, those who were in power, and say, no, we should not be killing those Jews. Well, you, we can't say that he's right if conventionalism is right, because we must say that group decided it was right to kill the Jews. Therefore, this one who said it's wrong, he's wrong, because his group said it's okay. So by the very fact that someone stood up and said this is, this is wrong to kill the Jews, shows that conventionalism is not right. Uh, another area where this, where this is, takes the place is any time you see social reform, I mean, any, any group would say, if you probably went to Germany today, I'd imagine that most of the people there would say, we have moved, there has been, we have made social progress in Germany to the point where from the 1940s until now, where the, those who are in power and the powers that be do not say that we should kill innocent Jews. We have made social progress to the point now where we are uh, uh, able to live with people from different cultures without a problem. They, they would say that that's social progress. But the problem is we can't call that social progress if we believe in this moral relativism. If we believe, it's not social progress, it's just a change. That group of people thought it was okay. You can't say it's progress. You just have to say it's different if you believe in this conventionalism. Also, those, if, if you go around in the world, people will say, yo, Gandhi, yes, Gandhi was a great reformer, and, and Jesus, if he, even if he's not the son of God, if they don't believe he's the son of God, they'll at least say he was a great moral teacher, right, or a great, a great social reformer of the day, and William Wilberforce and the abolition of slavery, what a wonderful man he was, and Martin Luther King Jr. and the wonderful work he did um, in, in the... Uh, in, in, in our American culture, um, he was a great social reformer of his day. By their, by the conventionalist de definition of what morality is, they weren't. They were immoral because they were standing against the tide. They were standing against the group of people that said this was right. They were the ones who should have been shut up and gotten rid of because they were standing against those people who said um, that, that something was right. They were, that um, social reformers then become immoral. Um, and what's interesting is, is this even, we even see this played out in society. Uh, where, where we might have in, in, the, in the UN, you know, I, I don't, when I think of the UN, I don't necessarily think of a religious organization, right? Um, I, I don't think that they would claim um, God as their objective moral grounding necessarily. Um, but they have adopted a universal declaration of human rights that they fight for. And just some of the preamble says, um, whereas recognition of inherent dignity and of equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is this foundation of freedom, justice, and peace in the world. And it goes on, and then in this, um, in this Declaration of Human Rights, the UN has stated this is, this is a basic human right, this is a basic human right, this is a basic human right that the UN stands for. Now, if you, if you don't believe that there's a God out there to which you can appeal to that's transcendent of all cultures around the world, of all the nations, how can you say that this is right for all nations and this is wrong for all nations? 
If you can't point to a God outside of time and space to do that, what can you point to? You'd either have to point to yourself, which in that case you can't say anybody's doing anything wrong by keeping slaves or uh, abusing somebody else. You can't say, well, this group is wrong for abusing someone else or for keeping slaves. We need to rectify that. All human rights goes out the window because it's made up if you're not appealing to a God outside of time and space. And actually, Amnesty International, um, a, a, a group that would not claim God as, as their moral grounding, does at least affirm this and says, yes, all people have dignity to the point of human rights. No one truly lives, uh, and I'm, I'm going to talk now, move a little bit to the absurdity. This, what, what are we left with then? If we actually try to live in the world of moral relativism, whether it's subjective, whether it's you and me get to decide what morality is, or whether it's our group gets to decide what morality is, or whether there's not really a morality at all, how, how, does, that, how does that actually play out in real life? Can you actually live that way? Think, think with me for a minute. Can you even live that way to say, well, it's either relative to you and me or it's relative to a culture? What would life look like? Well, no one actually truly lives as though there's no objective moral values. If, if that were the case, human rights would become pointless. The United States should just sit quietly here and never try to help anybody else. And we should not try to help those who are being, uh, women who are being degraded in, in, in countries around the world. Children who are enslaved and used as a workforce somewhere. We shouldn't, they think that's right. We shouldn't bother them if moral relativism is true, right? Um, laws can't be really enforced. If, if, if we all think, if I think it's right, who's the government to come in here and say that's wrong? If I don't want to pay my taxes, it makes me happy <laughs> not to pay my taxes. Who's the government to come in here and tell me I have to pay my taxes? You know, there's no right wrong. Nobody lives that way, do they? If they do, we put them in jail, or we put them, we put them somewhere else, because the, the, you, can't, you can't have a civilized society that way. Um, William Lane Craig, uh, in, in talking about this, tells a, a humorous story about a friend of his who was a professor at a, at a university. And um, one of his students handed in a, 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 a paper on why there are no objective morals, why objective morality does not exist. It just doesn't exist. And so he, um, he said it was a very well-argued paper, you know, very well-written, nicely done. And the professor decided to give it a big fat F and just handed it back to the student. Uh, and, of course, the student was just irate. I mean, he had spent so much time on this and comes up to them and says, you, you can't do this. This doesn't deserve an F. That's not fair. And the, and the professor says, um, this, is the, uh, this is the paper on on saying uh, that there, there are no objective morals, right? That there's no such thing as, as right and wrong. Yeah, that one. Well, I, I didn't like the cover of your, of your paper, of, your, of the, you know, the cover that you put on it. Well, you can't do that. That's not fair. Wasn't this the paper that argues that there's no such thing as fairness? Yeah, that's it. And the professor just kind of smiled at him. <laughs> and the student got the point. He got the point uh, that, that you know, his own paper and, and the idea of, uh, uh, even in writing the paper, he expected some sort of fairness in the grading. Right? And uh, William Lane Craig's friend, the professor friend, did, you know, change the grade to an A because it was a well-written paper even though the, the, the student got the point and he learned a whole lot more during the grading process than probably than he did in his research. But we don't live that way. We, we couldn't function that way. Our jobs would become pointless. Um, we would, we would, I think we would just become very angry people. No one actually lives that way. 
Um, instead, what we do is we, we look, let's, let's turn now and look at our reason and our experience. What does reason and experience tell us about the way we, we live? Let's look around and see, are there things that are right and that are wrong? If I were to stand here and say, how many of you believe that rape is right? Praise the Lord, no one raised, no one raised their hand. For those on the podcast, nobody has raised their hand. Um, how many of you would believe that torturing a baby for fun would be right? I could probably do this in just about any venue, and I highly doubt I would, I would see a hand being raised. Those who truly subscribe to this, if you truly subscribe to moral relativism, you would have to raise your hand. In some cases, yes, it would be right. And I told you last week I was watching a video, and I still didn't get to finish it um, because it didn't quite pertain to our subject, about a professor at, uh, I believe it was Harvard, who at least the title of his, of his uh, message or of his lecture was uh, the case, making the case for murder and cannibalism. And I don't know if that was more of a teaser or if he really was making the case. I think he was trying to get there, saying in some circumstances, yes, murder could be right. In some circumstances, sure, cannibalism is right. And, and he was trying to make that case. So if you actually play this relativism out, you can't say there are certain things that are wrong. I actually, I couldn't dig it up. I did have an article at one time of a woman uh, writer in, in, a, in a major newspaper who said as much. She said, and I, I couldn't, and coming from a woman, I was, I was very surprised when she said, yes, actually, um, I, because I don't believe that there are any objective morals, I have to say, yes, uh, rape is right. To some people, rape is, is right and okay. I, my, my mouth hit the floor. I couldn't believe someone um, would actually say that. Um, so there are a few out there. There are a few people. Now, they don't, I, I imagine they can't live their life normally fully subscribing to that. They, I'm sure they appeal in some way in living to a right and wrong. But the idea is that for the most part, all of us would say, right, those things are wrong. And if we went anywhere, we would say those things are wrong. Timothy Keller said, people still have strong moral convictions, but unlike people in other times and places, they don't have any visible basis for why they find some things to be evil and other things good. It's almost like their moral intuitions are free-floating in midair, far off the ground. Um, as we were saying earlier, when someone says, oh, this makes me happy, and this makes me, you know, well, this makes me happy, that makes you happy, let's just be happy and, you know, never the twain shall meet kind of thing. They would still say certain things are right and wrong. Right? They still live their life as though they have strong moral convictions. Well, it makes me, again, remember we made the, the, the comment, well, it makes me happy to hit you. Well, that's not right. Well, uh, apparently then you do have an idea of right and wrong. Apparently right and wrong trumps happiness because um, apparently you do have moral convictions. But why do you have them? Remember we talked about that last week. Why do you have them? Why is that? Everybody, nobody raised their hand to say rape was, was right. Why? Why do you all say rape is wrong? And I, I would pray that we all have the same answer here because God says it's wrong. Because God made people in, in his image and it is wrong to do that to them. It is wrong for, for, for someone to take advantage of an innocent woman in that way. That is wrong. Right? Because we appeal to, to God. But if someone does not have God, if as Timothy Keller says here, if they don't understand why, if you ask them that question, they kind of have to shrug unless they can point to an objective morality, unless they can point to God. If not, it's as if they're free-floating in midair. There's, I don't, I don't know. I don't know why I have that conviction. You know? People do not and cannot live as though objective, no objective morals ex exist, values exist. People everywhere do have an innate sense of right and wrong. 
Um, while people in some cultures may differ on some values, all peoples in all cultures find some actions and values always wrong. While it may be right in some kind, and uh, C.S. Lewis makes this case, while it may be right some, in some cultures to have any wife you want, or to have um, many different wives, you're not usually allowed to take any woman you want. You can't take someone else's wife. Almost all cultures, that's wrong. That's his wife. That'd be stealing. And, and in C.S. Lewis's Abolition of a Man, of man he, he actually lists from different codes, um, ancient codes, um, uh, different cultures all around the world, uh, certain things that keep popping up. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't lie. These things pop up in all these different cultures. It's an innate sense of right and wrong, whether they right, derive on the right-hand side or the left-hand side, whether they you know, think things are different than what we have here. They still appeal to certain moral absolutes, certain objective moral values are right and wrong. I don't know if it, has anybody ever seen the movie Remember Me? Good. I'm the, oh, okay. Good. There's one here. Uh, and if I get the plot a little bit twisted, just 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 help me out here because uh, I remember. I don't remember the whole thing. It was a little bit of a. Would you classify it as a chick flick? It wasn't my book. Okay. There wasn't enough shooting and and you know car crashing and, and that kind of stuff for me. That's. I, I guess I guess you're right because I remember the end. I don't remember the beginning very much. Maybe that's why. Okay, and okay, well, that's a chick flick then to me. <laughs> um, but, but anyway, my, uh, you know, my wife and I, we take turns. You know, she'll watch some action spy flick with, from, with me, and I'll, okay, you know, I'll get the popcorn, and we'll watch the chick flick together. Um, and it's about being with my wife more than it is watching the movie sometimes, and that's, that's the important thing. But that being said, I, we did watch this movie, and I do remember the ending. That's why I remember this movie so much. And I, and I had to say, I'm like, what, what, what was that movie again, hon? Remember, remember that movie? And she, she had to, just, to remind me which one it was. But in the movie, what, what basically happens is there, there's this... Um, there's this guy who, uh, and I, I'm trying to remember how he gets in trouble. There's, there's, there's this 11-year-old girl named Allie, okay, and she, she witnesses her mother being murdered um, in New York City. And her father, I believe, is a, is a police officer, if I'm not mistaken. And then um, another part of this movie, then, there's this 21-year-old uh, um, Tyler is his name. And um, he's having a kind of a rough life, too. Eventually, what happens is uh, he gets in trouble. Uh, this Tyler gets in trouble, and um, he gets this detective that's that's on his case, or this this cop is this young lady's father, and something uh, something happens with his friend, uh, with with this young man's friend. They figure out that that girl is the detective's daughter, and so they kind of make that bet about you know if you can you know start a relationship with her, then you could dump her and get back at the detective who you know gave you so much trouble. Okay, and so, and what do you think happens? Of course, in any of those situations, he does this. He takes the bait, and he's going to go start this relationship or try to woo this this girl in order to dump her later to get back at her father. And of course, what happens? He falls in love with her, right? That's that's the way it always happens. And and as the movie goes on, then um, there's things that 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 happen throughout the movie. But but basically, what I remember the most is at the end. What, what you're expecting to happen, you know, she finds out it's a big blow up, and you're expecting at the end then that that they're going to talk about it, explain the situation. Oh, okay, I understand. You know, the, everybody's happy. They get married, and, that, and that's what happens. What happens in the movie though is as time goes on, eventually this this young man 
goes to, to meet his father for some reason. And he goes into his father who's a businessman and you see him go up in this, in the, in this building and he's in this expensive, you know, really decked out uh, um, office waiting for his father. Um, and um, what you see is, is it backs up and you see he's in the Twin Towers. He's in one of the Twin Towers. And then they, they flash over to the girl who's in a different part of the city of New York and I guess she's in, she's in a classroom and you see written on the board September 11th, 2001. And so before this whole movie can end and have this happy ending, you know, the, you see the, one of the last scenes or one of the, the later scenes is this, this young man is standing at the window of his dad's office looking out and he sees a plane coming at him. And that kind of, you know, stops the whole part, the plot of the movie right there. And it, and it goes on for a little more. But I remember sitting there and almost pulling my hair out. Like, you've got to be kidding me. I sat through this whole movie. I'm waiting for them to get back together. And that's what happens. The movie ends like that. It just felt so wrong to me, right? That's not right. And I bet you, and I didn't see it in the theater, but if I saw it in the theater, I'm sure there are a lot of people going, no, you know, not, how can that happen? Besides the whole fact of what happened on September 11th, which we would all say was horrifically wrong, just the ending of the movie just didn't seem right. You were, you were rooting for them to, to, to work things out, and it ends like that. But that's my whole point. I've been in movies like that, other movies, where, where you're sitting in a theater and something happens contrary to the way it should have. It didn't happen as it ought, it didn't end as it ought to have ended. They didn't have the happy ending. And everybody in the movie, oh, oh, or they're crying or they're all upset. And I want to stand up and look around and say, why are you all upset? What, why do you think that's wrong? Everybody here does. We all come from different cultural backgrounds, different places. Why do you think that's wrong unless you think there was a right that should have happened? Everybody there, whether they said what's true for you isn't true for me, or, well, what makes you happy doesn't make me happy, everybody there said, that's not right. Nobody was there and said, well, oh well. You know, that's, 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 you know, that's, that's not right. Just like they wouldn't look at, at, at the, every September 11th and see the replays of what happened and say, Oh, well, that was their culture. That's what they felt. I can't really get mad at them for, for killing those thousands of people. That's what they believed. Nobody would say that. We would say that was horrifically wrong to kill that many innocent people in such a dastardly way because we're appealing to something outside of all of us, outside of time, outside of space. Um, I want to shift gears now. I, I think I've made the, the case pretty well that everybody does appeal to some sort of morality. We live our lives that way. Something that is outside of all of us. It's outside of ourselves. In other words, I can't say, well, this is how it makes me happy, or this, I think this is right, so I'm going to do it to you, and you can't argue. We all would say that's not fair. We appeal to something outside of each of us individually, but we also appeal to something outside of us culturally or communally, right? We would say that country is doing something wrong in killing the Jews. We are, have every right to go and stop them because there's a rightness outside of both of our cultures as well. There is an objective morality between you and I. There's an object, objective morality between nations and cultures. There is an objective morality. We live that way. History has always worked that way. We continue to live that way despite saying we don't and calling people intolerant, right? Objective moral values do exist. Our reason and our experience attest to that. Everybody's experience. And you can, all you have to do is ask somebody, do you believe that it's okay to torture a baby for fun? 
and, and just wait for the response. Now, if they try to, you know, someone may, well, you know, in, on some remote island of, you know, Timbuktu and, and down in the lower valleys and over on this side, there's a tribe somewhere. I didn't ask that. I didn't ask that. Do you think, okay, now I'm appealing to you, do you think torturing a baby for fun is wrong? And if you say, yes, I believe that's wrong, why do you believe that's wrong? Now you have to give me a reason why you believe that's wrong. And you can't appeal to culture. You can't appeal to anything in time, inside time and space. The only thing to appeal to is God. That's why this moral argument says, without God, objective moral values do not exist. But we know from experience, objective moral values do exist. Therefore, there is a God. There's something that we must appeal to outside of our time and space. Um, does that make sense to everybody? Um, how we walked through that? How we showed last week that there, without um, having something to tie your morality to, it's tied to nothing. Uh, and how we said that, but th tonight we've said that our reason and our experience, despite what some people have said, that it's tied to people, um, and despite what other people have said, that it's time, tied to time and space, or it's tied to cultures, there is an objective morality. Now I want to I want to sh show one more. Th I want to do one more thing here. I want to show one more. I want to show a movie clip, and then I want to go the opposite direction. Right now we've said, look, in the absence of morality. Um, uh, without God, there is no morality or, or objective morality. But we have an objective morality between all of us, people individually and culturally. Um, therefore, there is an objective morality and there is a God. I'm going to try to switch it the other way around and make a positive case for it. But first, I want to show a video clip. Uh, it should be the Guardian clip that I want to show. I don't know if anybody has seen it before we actually show it, before we start it. I'm sorry, I told you to start it. I didn't want to start it. How many have seen the Guardian? It's a great movie. That, that's my kind of movie, okay? It's an action flick, okay? And the idea behind this is that there is a, um, it's, it's about the Coast Guard, and there is the, the troubled young man um, who's, a, who's a good swimmer, and he enters into the Coast Guard, and they have a, a Coast Guard swimmer uh, who's, this, who's the best of the best. He has a horrible accident, losing one of his buddies and one of his partners um, who, go in, who went in, and he was a seasoned um, Coast Guard rescue swimmer go into a high season and everything. He lost his partner. It really played, had a hard psychological effect on him, so they put him into training young men into being rescue swimmers. This troubled young man comes under his group. They, you know, have the, there's a lot of tension throughout the movie. Eventually, he sees the promise of this, the, the, the seasoned swimmer sees the promise of this younger swimmer to the point where at the end, the seasoned swimmer is ready to go back and do rescue swimming and takes this young man with him. And so what we have here is we have um, the young man jumps out of the helicopter to go and, and, and help these, these people on the boat in the rescue swimming and um, get, gets stuck, has a problem. So the seasoned one... The seasoned uh, rescue swimmer has to jump in after him, and this is where we're going to pick up the movie. So let's take a look at this. Okay, what happened in that clip? We had the seasoned swimmer rescue the, the younger guy. They're both going up the line. The line starts to untangle. The seasoned swimmer releases himself, and the younger guy grabs him and eventually says, I'm not going to let you go, and the seasoned guy says, it's not going to hold us both. I know you're not going to let me go. I'm going to go myself. And we have, what, the seasoned swimmer give himself to save the younger guy, right? And if you saw this with the, with the whole, with the emotion that comes from the whole rest of the movie, you're sitting there with like tears in your eyes, saying, wow, like I, I, that guy just gave himself for that younger guy. And the end of the movie talks about the sacrifice that this guy made. But again, if we were in a movie theater, 
I probably look around and you hear sniffles. Why are you all crying? You are appealing to something. You all sensed something in that, didn't you? You all sensed that that was right. I don't think there'll be anybody in the theater going, well, that was stupid. Everybody's sitting there going, wow. What is it about that that made it so right? It was the self-sacrifice, wasn't it? It was the self-sacrifice. It was the love that senior guy had for the younger guy to say, I'll give my life for you. So I want to do this. I want to build something here. Work with me on this one. Okay? Everybody in that movie theater understood that, didn't they? They understand what that kind of love is. And I don't care if it's translated into Greek, if it's translated into Spanish, if it's translated into Russian. You could subtitle it any way you wanted. You'd still get the idea. Do you agree with that? It wouldn't matter where you live. You'd get the concept there. It didn't matter if I had the sound off. You could picture what was going on. And everybody would come up with the idea of saying, wow. That's self-sacrifice. That's love. Do you agree? That's, it's a universal concept. Right? This idea, I can't even spell. It's a universal idea, this concept of love, the self-sacrificing. Not a love like I love chocolate chip cookies. You know? It's an I love. There's a self-sacrificial love that's universal. Now, you know what? This movie was made quite a few, not quite a few years ago, but several years ago. But it, it still evokes the same idea today, doesn't it? Don't you still get the same emotion built up from that? I see it every time. I'm like, oh, that's just like, you know, heart-wrenching when you see it. And I'm sure that if we could show it, you know, 80 years ago, 300 years ago, 1,000 years ago, we'd have to explain the helicopter, but they'd get the concept, wouldn't they? And I don't care if you see it 300 years from now, you'd get the concept, wouldn't you, of this self-sacrificial love because it's also timeless, Now, beyond that as well, I, I want to make a, make a point. This love that we're talking about, though, if we all clear out of this room, okay, would I be able to say, wow, there's some self-sacrificial love going on in that room? Could I? If nobody's in this room, can you have love? You could have pews, you could have curtains, you could have flowers, but can there be love in this room? No, there cannot be love. Love has to have a person. There needs to be a showing of love. Something has to be done in order to have love. Remember, we talked about it a little bit last week. You can't have those abstracts out there. You need to, it's personal, isn't it? You have to have a person in order to have love. Can I say, wow, look at those pews in there. There's love in there. No, you can't do that. There has to be people. There has to be, it's, so it's a personal thing. This idea of love is personal. And not only that, can it happen with one person? If there's one person in this room, can there be self-sacrificial love? Well, no. How can that person have a self-sacrificing love with himself or herself, right? There needs to be more than one person, right? Does that make sense? Okay. So it's also found in community. I don't know if anybody sees where I'm going here. So we're saying about this love is that it's universal, it's found everywhere, it's timeless, across every time and every space, anywhere, and it's personal, it's, it has to do with a person, and it's found in community. You know what that sounds like to me? What 1 John 4.8 says. What does 1 John 4.8 say? God is love. God is universal. He's outside of time and space. He is a personal God, but he's not just one. He's three, God, he's three in one. You see that? 
Isn't that amazing? Everybody has that sense. It attests to what everybody says. And I'm going to the positive side here. Everybody knows what this love is. Everybody senses this love. Everybody agrees with this love. Everybody would agree it's timeless, it's universal, it's personal, and it's found in community. That's God. Exactly what we've been saying. Without God, you cannot have this objective morality of love without a timeless, universal God who is also personal and a trinity or a com communion or a, a, a community. And so without God, their objective moral values and duties do not exist. We do have a sense of objective morals and duties. Therefore, God exists. 